Morning, everyone. Uh, and morning to you online as well. Uh, if you're first time watching or first time visiting, my name is Paul Graham. I'm lead teaching pastor here, and we're currently in a series through the summer on the book of Ecclesiastes, um, which has a recurring phrase of being life under the sun. So you see what I did there with the whole summer thing, life under the sun. thought I was being kind of clever with that. And uh, as we've been going through Ecclesiastes, uh, we see that koaleth, uh, or the teacher, or the, the Greek translation of koaleth is Ecclesiastes, and so this is a book that's titled after the writer. And so the teacher, or the preacher, he might be called in your translation, who is very most likely Solomon, he's been engaged in a series of observations of life under the sun and what fulfillment or meaning might be found in this life. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is not so much asking as many people who approach religion do if there is life after death. A lot of people wonder if there's life after death. What Solomon in Ecclesiastes is really focusing on is wondering if there's even life before death. In other words, is there life that is truly life? Is there life to be lived here that has any meaning and purpose? And as we've followed our guide on his journey so far, he's looked at various human philosophies, materialism, hedonism, cynicism, stoicism. You could go back a few sermons and listen to that. He's considered the total spectrum of human experience from birth to death, from poverty to wealth, from peace to warfare, everything in between. He's considered the realities of loneliness and isolation versus community and comfort. He's even considered the ways which we looked at last week in which we might be worshiping God in an exercise of futility if we don't rightly know God for who he is. And so Solomon has been sort of ransacking life under the sun looking for meaning. And in each case, as you're reading Ecclesiastes, you begin to feel like Solomon is perhaps the most depressing writer in Scripture. You know, next to Job. He, he seems to teeter on the edge of despair, as Job did. Job is kind of the wisdom book for somebody who has nothing, who has lost everything and is asking where God is. Ecclesiastes is the other side of the coin. King Solomon, someone who has everything, who has been blessed in every way and is asking the same question, where is God? Where is God with nothing is the question of Job. Where is God when you have everything is the question of Ecclesiastes. And as he searches through life, he continually comes up fruitless in his pursuit of finding meaning. He says it's like grasping at wind or holding on to vapor. It's futility to find meaning under the sun. But what the teacher makes us feel as we read this lesson book is a major part of his lesson. You're supposed to feel badly when you read those parts of Ecclesiastes. He wants to drag you into the darkness and the futility that all of humanity feels as we search for purpose under the sun. And he makes the darkness darker so that the periodic rays of light, which he does shine into the text, will shine all the brighter and all the larger in the context of God's word. So that the good news of the gospel, ultimately, the good news of Jesus Christ shines the brightest of all. Now, in the second half of Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 5 and through 6, Running through the end of chapter 6, Solomon is returning to the common theme of money and family and all the things in which we might anticipate that we find hope and satisfaction and enjoyment in. Everybody from the beginning of time until now has believed that money is the answer to every problem. It has the power to bring us enjoyment and protection and satisfaction and purpose. 
And if it seems like Solomon talks about money and possessions a fair bit in this book, you're not wrong. But you also have to keep in mind that it was a top three topic of Jesus as well. The Bible makes a big deal about money because we make a big deal about money. Money and things are our biggest distraction and false idol. And so the Bible builds a lot of lessons for us around money because we do a lot with money. Now, there's a famous painting by the French Renaissance artist, uh, Quentin Matisse, and uh, it's called The Money Changer and His Wife. And, and as you can see, I hope you can see up there, yeah, it's bright enough, I think, uh, it depicts a man who's, who's fully preoccupied with the coins that are in front of him, and he actually has a little scale in his hands, and he's weighing each coin, and he wants to know that the coins are minted precisely to the weight that they should be minted so that they're worth what they're worth, and he's not getting shortchanged in any of his money-lending deals. And his wife is looking on as he's counting the money, distracted or captivated by the wealth that's in front of them on the table. And, and the painting is sort of a social commentary on the allure of money and the importance that we've placed on a, accounting for every bit that is owed us. And that we make sure that we are getting what we need and more than what we need, what we feel we deserve. We don't want to miss out on anything that is our due. Well, our teacher Solomon has seen firsthand the effects of wealth and of every other kind of abundance and has some pointed lessons to teach us about where contentment and satisfaction might be found under the sun or somewhere else. And so we're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and, and into the first part of chapter 6. And I'm just going to pray before we read God's word. Father God, we thank you for this book. We thank you that by your Holy Spirit it's been preserved for us, that you inspired Solomon to write this book, that as he sits on his throne near the end of his reign and looks back on the foolishness of some of the things that he's done, he's speaking now really to an Israel that is much like us. It's an Israel that has known peace for a long time. It is the superpower of the Middle East. Uh, it says in Kings that every man under his fig tree, uh, like a, you know, a Ford in every driveway, whatever it is, Lord, that, that this is a, an Israel that has experienced undue wealth, not just Solomon's wealth, but everybody's wealth. And now they are preoccupied with what is real meaning when we have everything as a nation. And Father, we can look at our own nation, we can look at our own selves, and that's not to say that everybody in this room or everybody in this county or country is wealthy, but we are a first world nation, and we have built wealth upon wealth, and social safety nets, and health care, and bank accounts, and stock exchanges, and industry, and we look from place to place for meaning and satisfaction now, and Father, we need the same guidance that Solomon is offering his nation. Uh, to see our nation return to where true meaning and true purpose is found. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. So Ecclesiastes 5, we're going to start at verse 10, and I'm going to read through till 20, and we'll dip into chapter 6 a little later. This is God's word. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage of their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. 
And as he has come naked into this, in his, from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart." So here's Solomon's lesson on money and material things and wealth and accumulation. Money provides no satisfaction, we see in verses 10 to 17. Um, Solomon looks at the people who have wealth and abundance and accumulation of affluence, and he identifies the disease uh, that we sort of came up with in early 2000s called affluenza. Uh, Affluenza, the, the term started trending in the early 2000s, and, it, and it's a pretend, I guess, it's a pretend or a real social disease that seems to have affected most of North America. And it's used only partly tongue-in-cheek to describe the unhealthy effects of wealth on both individuals and society. It's a manic obsession with working and gaining and acquiring wealth. It's extreme materialism and consumerism. It's feelings of guilt and chronic dissatisfaction with their current circumstances, no matter how much wealth they have. And with the advent of social media, we get a daily parade of affluenza examples on influencer Instagram feeds where we see spoiled and entitled people behaving badly or pretending to be spoiled and rich because they don't have what all the real spoiled and rich people have, so they just pretend on Facebook that they're spoiled and rich, but all of whom are chronically unhappy because seemingly we just have too much stuff. Well, Solomon didn't have to wait until the 21st century to sp- and sort of peak consumerism in order to diagnose affluenza. If you skim through this text, we can see that the teacher has already identified these same effects and the effects of wealth and influence on the nation of Israel. First, he says, as wealth increases, so do expenses, and so do the people who depend on you or have a hand in your pocket. And all you can do is stand by and watch. And I think anyone who has been the parent of a teenager can relate to some degree. The more money we make, the more expenses we seem to accumulate. The more we take in, the more we spend. We add complexity and dependencies into our life. And it isn't just people that add into our life. We think, I can afford a second car now, or we can have a boat now, or I can subscribe to Netflix, or I can get a faster data plan, or I can get a better laptop, or we just keep adding things. And now we're not just feeding and sheltering our kids, we're feeding and sheltering our toys, right? I was over at a friend's house, and we were kind of joking about American cars, and he asked me what Fiat stood for. I said, I don't know. He said, fix it again, Tony. Um, (laughs) That's probably racist that Tony is an Italian name. I don't know. I didn't mean to offend any Italians. Your name doesn't have to be Tony. Um, But but that's the thing, right? A boat is about another thousand. we, we're feeding and sheltering the toys that we bring into our life. The more we accumulate, Solomon sees, just more goes out. And so we have 
you know, a boat, a car, four cell phone plans, Netflix, Disney, the local mechanic and his family, we're supporting them. And, and as wealth increases, we just take on more dependence. And Solomon had firsthand experience of this. In 1 Kings 4, 22 to 23, we're given some insight into Solomon's expenses. One day in his palace, it says in 1 Kings 4, 22 to 23, Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores. That's over 6,000 liters of fine flour, and 60 cores, that's over 13,000 liters of meal, 10 fat ox and 20 pasture-fed ox, and 100 sheep beside deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. That's one day. Maybe your grocery bill doesn't look so bad anymore. I mean, even after the inflation. Like, Solomon was a rich dude, but as he observes, with much wealth comes much expense. He's got to care for this palace. He's got to care for this government. He's got to care for this household, this army. It goes on, and it talks about the 60,000, I think it is, horses that he has. I mean, he had a real problem with fast horses. He needed all of them. And, uh, you know, the army that he had to feed and all of that stuff. And as Christians, we should have more wisdom and more self-control at our disposal about how money comes and goes in our lives. When Jesus intersects our life and we receive the Holy Spirit, we all know as Christians that we become a new creation. In a nutshell, it means that we now live for a new purpose. Solomon is trying to find purpose in money, and he's saying it's fruitless. All you can do is stand by and watch as the money comes and the money goes. There's nothing there. But as new creations in Christ, we live for a new purpose. We view everything in the world under the sun through a new lens, and that includes money. Everything changes in value compared to the new kingdom that we live in and our new treasure that we possess. The Bible and the Spirit gives us new wisdom and new priorities. There's no part of our new life as Christians that will look like our old life. And so where our money goes and the things that we want to be depending on our money will change. And Solomon here is just describing the old life. He's describing the old life under the sun when money just kind of came and went. And whenever we got more, we were just looking for more things to spend it on under this sun. But when God comes into the picture, then things change. And Solomon says, this is what life looks like without God in our frame. Secondly, in verse 12, there's more to this disease of affluenza. The teacher says that the working class enjoys better sleep because affluenza creates anxiety and depression and stress. Um, You know, Joe working class uh, gets up at dawn, he lays bricks or he tills the fields for 8 to 10 hours, he goes home to his family, he eats a simple meal, he sleeps soundly, and the owner of the estate is more likely to be losing sleep, like the money lender and like his wife obsessed with taking care of all the things that the workers are working on, all the stuff that he owns, this vineyard and that vineyard and that herd and that thing and that palace and that house and that cottage, you know, and those docks and and that boat. The estate owner is losing sleep while the workers are sleeping soundly. His stomach is full of all the best and richest food, but it doesn't let him sleep. That's affluenza. Thirdly, he observes in verses 13 and 14 that hoarding riches is to our own harm. I mean, who ever heard of a happy miser, right? Whenever you hear the word miser, you automatically know that's an unhappy person. You can't be a happy miser, especially if after all that hoarding of wealth, it ends up being lost to a bad investment. Now, today we might think that's like a stock market crash or something like that or trying to day trade Bitcoin or NFTs. But in Solomon's day, it 
usually took the form of investing in a shipping endeavor, you know, fronting the cash to outfit a ship, fill it up with goods, send it to some faraway port where you can sell them for more, buy cheap, bring it back, sell it. But in the meantime, the ship is sunk at sea or the ship is taken over by pirates. And so all this investment, all this hoarding to be able to invest in this great thing that was going to make you rich is lost. And Solomon says this person who put all their hopes in that wealth and in that investment has nothing to even support his own son. And so we see that money and wealth is not a dependable source of stability or security. And you probably know people, and maybe there were seasons in your life when you thought money was going to be your hope of security and stability, and it's disappeared. Finally, Solomon says in verses 15 to 17 that the problem with money is that you can't take it with you anyway. In terms of ultimate profit, there is none. You enter the next life as naked as you entered this one. So a life of toiling after wealth is fruitless. It's ultimately grasping wind. Nobody lies on their deathbed content that their bank is full with all the years of their life having been anxious and unstable and unsatisfying. So Solomon says, you're going to go back into the ground the same way you came out of your mother's womb, naked and with nothing. And he says, the days of that man's life were just darkness, vexation, sickness, and anger. Before I entered into the ministry and became a pastor, I formed an internet startup and I operated it with my partners for just over a decade. And and through that decade, the internet was booming and everything was the 90s, everything was exciting. We started several companies, we bought some companies, we sold some companies. I have seen money come and money go in and out of our business and in and out of my own bank account at alarming rates. We rode the dot-com market up to its peak and we watched the NASDAQ crash in March of 2000 and almost eight years of gains evaporate. And I don't know what Solomon knows, and I don't know what you've experienced in your life, but I know the stress of trying to acquire wealth. And the more empires you are trying to run and hang on to, the harder it is and the more stressful it is. And the amount of attention that it can consume in your life when you're trying to gain it, and also the attention it consumes when you are losing it. So whatever way your bank account is going, whether it's going up or whether it's going down, it can consume your attention. And so Dr. Solomon has diagnosed a few of the big symptoms of affluenza, the love of money, how it consumes us even as we try and consume it. Money and wealth and affluence and accumulation are not a thing to be loved, to put our hope in. Wealth does not ultimately satisfy, Ecclesiastes says. It has no ultimate answer. So if money is not the ultimate answer, where then can we look in this life under the sun? What stance or attitude should we have towards wealth and work that will protect us from this miserable end? And into the darkness that the teacher has made all the darker, he shines this little light again from the realm that lies over the sun. Money is not the determining factor in your enjoyment or satisfaction. God is. So here is what Solomon says in verse 18. He says, Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which one toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. So so here's the lesson of the teacher. After looking at affluenza, after looking at wealth, after looking at all of these things, seeing the trouble that he has seen in his own life and in the nation of Israel and all the wealthy people that he knows, 
He says, all of these troubles, this is the lesson. We need to shift our gaze. We need to shift our eyes. Don't look at the wealth. Don't look at the things. Don't look at the material things that wealth has delivered you as the source of your satisfaction. Solomon says, let your gaze look contentedly past the things that you have to the one who has provided them. He says, by all means, eat, drink, work. There are jo- there's joy in those things. Take joy in the things that God has provided, not because they are the source of your joy, but because God has given them for your enjoyment as gifts. And God is the supplier of our enjoyment. Notice he says, furthermore, furthermore, my lesson's not done. Don't just take pleasure in the gifts God has given you. Let me tell you what's really going on. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God, for he will not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. You get that furthermore? Solomon says there's more to this lesson. This is what you have to understand. It's not just about the things of this world and saying, oh, thank you, Lord, that I have food to eat and all of those things. It is that God actually gives you the power to enjoy them when you are focused on him. The ability to even enjoy the material things of this world come from God because you can have all the material things. Solomon just got done explaining this. You can have all the material things in the world and no enjoyment. The power to enjoy the things that we have comes from God. Literally rejoice in them, he says. If you have God in view as the ultimate provider of your joy and satisfaction, then you won't be looking back, dwelling on the ups and downs of your life circumstances, he says. He says you will be occupied with the gladness that you have in God, in the gladness of your heart. You won't be distracted by your situation in life. You you instead will be distracted by the goodness of God. And I'll just dip into chapter 6 here in verses 1 and 2 because Solomon wants to make it super clear that it's not our wealth and circumstances where our joy comes from. It's actually from God who gives us sovereignly the power to enjoy them. So he says the other side of the coin. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun and is prevalent among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, and yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and severe affliction. So this is the other side of the coin. First of all, he says, you should just be happy to eat, drink, and enjoy your labor. And God gives you the power to enjoy that. And then he says, on the other hand, there are people that have everything. There are people who have every bit of wealth, every bit of honor, every bit of all that God, or sorry, all that life offers under the sun, and God does not give them sovereignly the power to enjoy them. God has not sovereignly allowed that person to take satisfaction. Strangers are getting the satisfaction of his life rather than himself. So lower class, middle class, day worker, wealthy estate owner, empire builder, in both cases, God is sovereign over our joy. And our joy depends on, are we looking at the things that we have or are we looking past the things to the gift giver, to the, things, to the God who has given us those things? Solomon is in essence saying, don't look at the things, look at the one who has provided them, and he is the one in which you find your satisfaction. Or Solomon would say simply, fear God, reverence God. That's where satisfaction lies. Look to God for your satisfaction because it isn't found in wealth and affluence. You can have a little and be content, and you can have much and be content if you look to God for your contentment. C.S. Lewis wrote very simply, 
God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There's no such thing. You just, if you're looking for contentment, if you're looking for satisfaction, if you're looking for purpose under the sun, and you are looking in a whole bunch of places that are not where God is, you will never find them because it doesn't exist. There is no satisfaction apart from God, and that's what Solomon is saying. In the introduction today, I mentioned once again that the whole book of Ecclesiastes is really the teacher searching to see if there's life before death, a a life that's in this life. And in the first message of the series, we picked that idea up from 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul is indicating to Timothy how he must instruct his people, especially his wealthy people, so that they can take hold of the life that is truly life. 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19 says this, Command those who are rich in, his, in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's almost like Paul had Ecclesiastes memorized, which he did. I'm just, I'm kidding. He did have Ecclesiastes memorized. And I think Paul is borrowing quite healthily from uh, Koalath here. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That's... That's what Solomon wants. That's what he's looking for. He's saying, is there life in this life? And Paul says, there is life that is truly life. Now, obviously, he's not talking to dead people. He doesn't expect Timothy to be talking to dead people. He's talking to people who are alive, but they're not alive. You have life, but you don't have life that is truly life. And so if you want to lay hold of life that is truly life, you have to look for life under the sun. You have to look for life in this life. And the interesting thing here is that Paul actually says is that the way we use our wealth will lay up treasure as a firm foundation for the coming age. So there is a choice as Christians how we use our wealth, having experienced life that is truly life, which actually does pay dividends in the future. And there's a way to use our wealth now that pays no dividend in the future. This is exactly what Solomon is teaching God supplies us with all these things to enjoy. God is the provider of our satisfaction. All things and all circumstances are for our contentment, and we can be content in all circumstances. And and so be instructed, we who are rich in this present world, we who have enough to eat and drink and a job to enjoy being at work at, be rich in good works and be generous and ready to share because how we use worldly wealth has heavenly implications. This is how you take it with you. Remember Solomon said you can't take it with you? It's interesting. That's old covenant thinking. In the new covenant, Paul, and actually Jesus too, says you can take it with you. It's just not the way you think. You're not going to park your boat in your tomb like the way you know, the Egyptian pharaohs put all the stuff in their tomb because they needed it in the next life, so they put a chariot in there and you know, live horses and unfortunately some servants too because you know, need you when I go to the next life. We don't take it with us that way. Paul says, you use your wealth now and you lay up treasures in heaven. You take it with you. It's there to meet you on the other side. Jesus said it in the simplest terms. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, it's, it's really interesting here. 
you ask the question, okay, Jesus, I get that. How, how do I store up treasures in heaven? And you might think these are all spiritual things, but if you go to Luke chapter 16, Jesus actually tells a parable that everybody's always confused about because he, in, in Luke chapter 16, he actually endorses or commends the dishonest manager. Remember the parable that I'm talking about? There's a manager, and he finds out that he's going to get fired, but the, the master is still a long way off, and he's coming. The master's coming, and the, and the manager realizes he's going to get fired. And so he goes around to all the people that he has deal, his, his master, his manager, has deals with. And the manager goes and he says, you know, write, you know, write your invoice down a bit. You know, and and I'll, I'll give you a break on that deal. And I'll give you a break on that deal. And so he was building friendships with all of these people because he knew he was going to get fired. And once he got fired, he wanted to make sure he was going to have some friends for life after that job. And then the master returns and, of course, the inevitable happens. But Jesus says, even the people of this world know how to use money better than you disciples. You guys are dumb. Okay, Jesus probably didn't say dumb. That's my words. He probably said fools. He used that word. He said, you're foolish. You're, you're fools. You don't know how to use money even the way the world uses money. He says, and now I'll give away the parable. The master is coming, and we're all going to get fired from this world. We're going to get, like, permanently fired from this world. And we will not be able to do any more work in this world anymore. And so whatever money we have right now, we should be clever and we should be using it to prepare for the next job, which is going to be in heaven, worshiping God. It's going to be a great job, right? And so this is why Paul and Jesus say, be generous with your money and use your money while you have it here to build up for yourself treasures in heaven so that you have a reward in heaven. You can actually use the money that you have here in order to gain in heaven, to gain friends, to build the kingdom, to invest in VBS, to invest in day camps so that kids come and they hear the good news and, you know, learn about Jesus. And then you'll go to heaven and you'll meet, you'll meet that kid from Halliburton. And they'll be like... It was the Bible that you got me in VBS that got me here, right? And you'll be dancing with that kid in heaven because you invested. And that's what Paul is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Solomon is saying. That's what that parable is about. Okay, I can't leave it. I'll give it to you one more way. It's like when you go to Vegas, okay? So when you go to Vegas and you're spending your money in Vegas, it doesn't matter how much you win as long as you don't leave. The casinos don't care. They own all the shops. As long as you win the money and spend it again or you re-gamble it, they know as long as you keep spending your money in Vegas, they will eventually get it back. The smart thing to do would be to go to Vegas, get their money, and once you got their money, immediately leave Vegas or spend it on things that are not Vegas. Okay, now bear with me. The world is Vegas. We are stuck here in Vegas. And the world is happy to give us money as long as we keep spending it on the world. You know, Satan will make you rich as long as you don't spend that money on anything that's for the kingdom. He's happy to distract you with money. But the clever disciple says, okay, world, you're going to give me all this worldly money. You know what I'm going to use this worldly money for? Not on the world. I'm going to use this worldly money on the kingdom. That's what Jesus is talking about. You're going to get fired from this world. So don't use money for this world. Use this money in this world for the kingdom. That's where you're ultimately going. It is the best trick you can play on the devil to take his money and use it against him. That is what the lesson of Solomon and Jesus 
and Paul and James and all of them is, is you will get money in this world. Don't be foolish and spend it back on the world. Spend it on the kingdom. Martin Luther wrote, I will forsake my, If I will forsake my riches when I die, so I should forsake them while I live. Solomon said, you can't take it with you anyway. You're going naked into the next life. So you might as well spend it on the kingdom while you're here. Satisfaction is entirely the providence of God. He is the provider. Jehovah Jireh. Do not chase wealth and affluence as a means to your joy and contentment. Rather, enjoy what God has given and use that gift to prepare for the life to come. And as homework, you can go and look at Luke 16 and reread that parable and just realize what Jesus is saying when he commends the dishonest manager. If we go back to that painting... by Matisse. We can ask ourselves, where is the money changer's heart? What is the money changer devoted to? Remember, Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. This is also the concern of Solomon. Solomon's concerned with his nation Israel, who's pursuing wealth and pursuing affluence and pursuing money. It's the concern of every uh, church, every pastor, every spiritual leader of North America for the last hundred years. You can go and just look at the concern that the church has for the affluence of North America. Where is our heart? Where's the money changer's heart? Where is his wife's heart? Money and wealth has entirely captured the husband, and it is a major distraction to the wife. But there are some deeper layers of detail to this painting that most people, if you're just walking by in the gallery, don't really see at first glance, and some people never notice them. There's two unusual objects in the foreground on the desk. The first thing that you might notice that's bigger is is the distracted wife was actually in the process of reading a devotional book or an illustrated Bible. There's a picture of Mary. You see it up there? It's a picture of Mary and the child Jesus on her lap. But the book is almost forgotten as she gazes at the gold coins being weighed. She's not looking at her Bible. She's not looking at her devotion book. She's not looking at the child Jesus. Not only that, but if we zoom in even further on this painting, we see that there is a reflection in this very oddly placed mirror The mirror is reflecting what is right in front of the couple. The mirror is facing us. This is what is right directly in front of them as they're counting the money. And there's a large window, and the frame of the window clearly forms a cross shape. Can you see that up there? Yeah, you can. And through the window, we also see that there is a cathedral. The money changer lives right next door to a cathedral. The tower of the church is right outside their window, and the cross piece of the window is right before them, but they don't see it. And if you look even more carefully, and I think you can see it up there, at the very bottom of the mirror, you can see, and it's actually the artist, Quentin Matisse, has painted himself into the picture. The artist is sitting right below the window. It's the figure of this other man. And he has one hand reaching out towards the cruciform shape of the frame and to the church tower beyond. And in his other hand is a Bible. And he's not looking at the money changer or his wife. He's not looking at the money that is on the table beside him or at the people who may be his patrons, may he be his benefactors, maybe the people who paid him to paint their portrait. 
And he's not looking at them. The artist is looking at the cross. He's reaching to the cross. He's reaching to the cathedral, to the true wealth of knowing God and salvation through the cross work of his son. It's an interesting painting. It's a painting that tells a story. It's an illustration of those verses in Matthew 6, 19 to 21 that we just read. Where is your heart? Is it with the money? Is it distracting you from your devotion? (laughs) Is it distracting you from what is right in front of you, the cross of Christ in the cathedral that they have no eyes for? The artist wants to be clear. He is not distracted by the money. He is reaching to the cross. The story this painting tells, I think, may illustrate even better a verse a little bit later in Matthew. Matthew 13, 44. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's, that's what the artist is depicting here. He's saying there is something far more important than weighing the coins to find out whether you're getting shortchanged. There is something right in front of these people in the cross and in the cathedral that they are not seeing. There is a treasure that they should be selling everything in order to pursue. The man in this little one-sentence parable here, he finds the kingdom of heaven. He finds Jesus. And having found Jesus hidden in the field, he goes away and he says, that treasure is worth more than everything else I have. I am going to sell everything I own in order to get that treasure. That is the treasure of our heart. The kingdom of God, the son of God, freedom in Christ is the treasure which is worth more than everything we could possibly own. God doesn't always ask us. He doesn't normally ask us to sell everything we own in order to acquire Christ. In fact, Jesus Christ is a free gift. But once you know Jesus, he is such a treasure. There, if, if anybody came to you and said, is there anything that you would hang on to in order to give up Christ? You would say there is nothing. He is the greatest treasure. You need to take my house? Take it. You need to take my job? Take it. You need to take my family? Take them. Sounds terrible, but it's true. Christ is the greatest treasure. And that's what Solomon is beginning to teach Israel. That's what Jesus is teaching us. That is what Paul is teaching the church. That God is the sovereign supplier of our contentment to everyone, wealthy or otherwise. Don't be fooled by the world's insistence that it's money or affluence in which we will find our joy. Rather, put your hope in God. He has supplied all that you need and more. In fact, God has given us the free gift of his greatest treasure, his only son. He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure in the field. And we know that we have the life that Jesus offers when he becomes more precious to us than anything else in this life. When he is our greatest satisfaction. When we would exchange anything in order to preserve the satisfaction that we have in Christ. And having encountered the real treasure that is Jesus, recognizing all that he has done for us, all that he is for us, all that he will be for us in heaven, inevitably our attitudes towards the world and towards money must change. We can't go on treating anything in this life with the same value that we treated it before. Money is meant for more than storing in bank accounts. Money is meant 
for more than more toys or building bigger toy sheds. Our lives have greater purpose as Christians when we consider every part of our life with God in view, our marriage, our work, our relationships, our kids, our recreation, and especially our money, everything changes, especially where our money goes. Because where our money goes, Jesus says, that's an indication of where your heart is. And Solomon doesn't want his people to fall into the traps that he fell into. He doesn't want them to suffer the pangs of either great wealth or great loss, both of which will be painful apart from God. The only rejoicing, the only satisfaction to be found under the sun is to live and work and spend our money with Jesus in the frame. Jesus has got to be in the frame of the picture of our life. Because if Jesus isn't in the frame, we will not be satisfied, no matter how little or how much we have. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Solomon again and his lessons. Thank you that he was the precursor. He just saw glimpses of the bright light that was coming in the new covenant. And that we have the true treasure that is Jesus Christ. And we have his wisdom and his instruction. And so, Father, I just pray that each and every one of us would take this text to heart as we do every Sunday. That we don't read this with just idle curiosity or intellectual um, you know, curiosity. But that we read this understanding that this is your word and it's living and active and it's relevant today. Solomon is trying to tell young people and old people something about life. And if we don't learn it early, then we should learn it later. How to have true satisfaction under the sun. And more importantly, how to take it with us. How to have satisfaction in Jesus Christ for eternity. And so, Father, I just pray if there's anyone here that needs to re-examine the attachment that their hearts have to this world or where they have been pursuing satisfaction and purpose, and if they're honest, ultimately coming up empty, then, Father, I am glad they've been here today to hear this message, whether it's now or in the future. I'm glad that they are considering the choices that they've made with the things that you have given them and whether they're honoring you through them, whether they're looking past the gift to the gift giver. And, Father, ultimately, whether they're looking to the cross, to Jesus Christ. You don't ask us for anything for the gift of Jesus Christ. You just say, come, repent, receive. And so, Father, I pray we would do that in each of our lives. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.